So uh, we're going to continue with Psalms. And we're in Psalm 39. So I would encourage you, if you got a Bible, open it up. If not, pull it up on your phone. And I'm going to just, I'm going to read this. I'm going to read the whole Psalm. It's, it's 13 verses, so it's not, it's not too long. And this is a, it's a pretty heavy Psalm. It's another psalm that's attributed to, to David. It starts with, to the choir master, to Jedithan, a psalm of David. So this is, this is God's... Tell you what, I will invite you to stand as we read this, okay? I will, I will read it together. I will read it for us, and you can follow along. This is God's word to us. I said, I'll guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I'm going to guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused. The fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Oh, Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace and my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. This is God's word. Father, thank you for the word and help us to hear and to have it read us and move on us and change us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You can sit or keep standing if you want. And do you want, do you want Katie and, okay, it's totally, it's totally up to you, whatever you want to do. Okay, so this, this psalm is super personal. This is, um, they're going to, they're going to go play in the American Ninja Warrior course, the babies. And so when Charlie gets here too, he can go play American Ninja Warrior. Uh, So this is a deeply personal and intimate song that that David wrote. It's attributed to David. At the same time, it's a little ironic how personal it is, and yet it's written and it's it's, it's part of the compilation for public consumption because this is part of God's Word, and this is specifically part of the songbook of the Hebrew people that we now carry on as a songbook. So it's not only personal, it is also something for us to be reminded of what draws us together as community. And that something is confession. So when you hear the word confession, what do you think about? Confessing your sins. Confessing your sins. Okay. 
What? Admitting you've done wrong. Is it a making public what making was private? Okay. Perhaps. Yeah, and that in I mean, cases. yeah, in some cases, absolutely. <laughs> or acknowledging what everyone else knows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is it a good feeling? Later down the road. So, so here's the big idea. So it's on your sheet if you got a sheet. The big, the big idea I want to, I see in this text that it's been really challenging to me. Confession frees us for life when we know the maker of life cares. So I was talking to a friend of mine this week about this, and he's going through some really hard stuff. And he says, I do not feel free through my confession. And I'm like, okay, I get that. The intent of confession is to set us free. God's desire with giving us confession is actually to set us free. And I know, I mean, think about people that you've confessed to that care for you. So the gazillion times that I've had to confess to Fran has been a freeing thing to me because I'm confessing to someone that I know actually cares for me. When you're confessing to someone that you're not sure they care for you, that's a little more scary, isn't it? But when you know that someone cares... That's, that can be a legitimately, legitimately, it can be a, a freeing thing. So we're going to look at this. We're going to look at how this confession actually sets us free. And I want to break it up. And just as we walk through the text, confession is something that we need to do. Our confession is about our situation. We need to confess our reality and we need to confess our need. This is what This is what David does. So I want to walk through this. He starts with verse 1. He's looking around and he sees that the wicked, the wicked are in his presence. So what does he say? Look, I'm going to guard my mouth. I'm going to guard what I say. He doesn't want to sin with his tongue. When the wicked are coming around him and provoking him, he doesn't, he's saying, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. So when you see wrong done and you think you see at least what you perceive to be wicked or actually could be wickedness, how often do you want to scream out in anger? Anyone? I mean, is that not your initial, my, it provokes me when I see something wrong. My initial response is I want to, I want to lash out. In the presence of wickedness, what David is saying is, look, I don't want to fight fire with fire. I don't want to fight anger with anger. This is admirable. He's making this commitment. That, that, is it not an admirable thing to say, I don't want to do this? I'm not, I'm not going to do this. David says, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. But this burning desire that needs to be guarded, according to David, is not just David having a hard time with other people. I think it's also a confession that he's having a hard time with God. I think as he's making this confession, he's saying, look, I'm, I'm frustrated. I think you, God should be acting differently. I think you should be doing something. And my frustration, yes, is with others, but I'm also, I think he's expressing his frustration with the fact that God is not acting. Have you ever felt like you're fighting against God? Like the things are happening, you're like, come on, I feel like I'm a, okay, most of us were self-righteous enough probably not to say this, but I feel like I'm a better judge than you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm looking at all the stuff that's happening. Why don't you? Why don't you do something? Of course, being the the deeply humble person that I am, that that I, I'm going to bite my tongue. I'm not going to say it. 
right? And this is, this is a tough one. This is a tough one because do we need to acknowledge and speak out against wrongs that are done? Yes, we do. I mean, the Bible is full of things like that. That is absolutely true. But there's a difference between crying out to God because you believe he sees and he cares versus yelling at God because you think he's blind, deaf, and dumb. Okay, this is, this is me. This is my processing. Crying to and with God is very different than crying at and against him. David says, I was committed to guarding my ways, so not to sin. I am committed. I am so committed. Good for him. It's a good thing. But as time went on, as he bit his tongue and he kept silent, verse 3 he says, my heart became hot as I mused, as I groaned. The word is groaned, as I'm groaning inwardly. My heart was groaning inwardly. And as he inwardly groaned, the fire burned inside. Do you know that feeling? I'm going to bite my tongue. I'm going to keep my tongue. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. So, did David stand firm? David's our model, right? Did David stand firm? What does it say in verse 3? Did he keep his mouth shut? After all this, he says, ah, shoot. Then I spoke with my tongue. I'm so committed. I'm so committed. No, you're not. I spoke with my tongue. He confesses this. He couldn't hold it in. It seeps out or probably it exploded like a volcano. Right? All of this is a confession. It's a confession that he has a desire. He has a commitment. And yet, and yet, in his frustration, he failed. And he's confessing this. How many of us have let the burn of frustration explode? Yeah. I mean, this is what we need. This is what we need community for. This is part of it. We need a place where we can honestly say, I I blew up. And maybe I blew up against you. And and we need to be able to be that honest. And how many times have, have have you opened your mouth when you said you wouldn't? Or you maybe just murmured under your breath. Or you wrote the scathing email and you know you're supposed to go hit delete and you accidentally hit send. (laughs) Or you have the post, the Facebook post or the whatever you're doing now, Instagram or... TikTok. Thank you, TikTok. (laughs) You, you, You create this... I'm gonna, I'm gonna speak the truth into this situation and what you end up doing is you, you, you hit post and you just feed the fire of contempt and hatred and division. Why do we do it? Do you know, do you know why you do it? I, I do it because I, I'm burning inside. I, I know what David's feeling. I burn inside. The fire is too great, so I lash out. I'm trying to wake... What, what am I doing? I'm trying to wake people up to the truth. Come on. I'm going to give you the truth. Right? Come to the truth table. Right? Isn't that like in the moment? Isn't that we think we're so, we think we're so, I think I'm so right. Let's, yeah. I got to let these idiots know what's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where's our focus when we're in this kind of a situation? I think that is the issue. We are focusing on the situation. I think our focus, uh, my, my focus is the wrong that I perceive that overshadows something bigger than the situation. Reacting in the heat of the moment, for me, tends to be extraordinarily self-righteous. 
I feel so much better than the people that I need to correct. It's not out of love of my enemy. Like, I can say it. Like, I'm just saying this to love you. Really? Really? Are you doing that to love me? And ultimately, it's a mistrust in God's ability. Okay, this, is, this gets deep within me. It's a mistrust in his character as if he's incompetent to do his job. Again, I know not to say that, but I know that's actually something that's going on inside of me. Man, how many illustrations I could give of this. So here's one that's not too damning to me. Years ago, when we lived in our other house, our kitchen and our living room were all like one massive room and so man it drove me crazy when the kids would not clean dishes and they wouldn't unload the dishwasher drove me crazy so I went through seasons of biting my tongue I'm not going to say anything I'm not going to say anything so they're all in the den they're watching tv I'm in the kitchen remember one big room and I am being as loud as I possibly can in cleaning the dishes. <laughs> I'm biting my tongue. No, I'm not. I'm slamming dishes. I'm doing everything that I can to make as much noise without breaking dishes. Why is that? Because my frustration burned and I, I failed to keep the commitment. So in all the mess, David confesses he tried. Look, he had good intent. He had a good desire. He did. He's acknowledging he had a good desire. He didn't want to sin, but he blew it. And in his frustration, he failed. This kind of confession is actually the beginning of freedom. This is where freedom begins. So then moving on into verses 4 through 6, what, what then? Uh, he says, let me know my end. Why? Well, when we fail, when we blow it, when when we're driven by anger and fear and frustration, we lose sight of reality. We need to confess what is reality, the reality of our place. All right, so he's asking God to remind him. So he says, remind me of these things. Well, he's saying the very things that he wants God to remind him. He knows these things, but he's asking God to remind him, meaning I need you to remind me deeper within my being. I I need you to press what I know to be true deeper into my very being in the moments of my frustration. So we need for the Lord to make us know, verse 4, we need his life, his spirit to convict us and to convince us of the truth deeper within, not just within our heads. Like we could say these things, but we need it. We need him to do something deeper. We need more than just willpower because according to David, his willpower simply was not enough. It's not, I tried, I tried, I tried and the heat within me exploded. I need something more than my willpower. This is why, this is why we again need community. Not just to hold each other accountable, but to hold each other's hand when we fail. It's why we need wisdom. It's why we need repetition. It's why we need this. It's why we need to hear God's word spoken and read. And we need to be reminded of what's actually true about who we are, our character. We need to be reminded of what's true about who he is and his character. We need his perspective. And what specifically is the reality here that we need to know? This is in verses 4 through 6. What does he want us to know? What do we need to be reminded of? What is this reality? Here it is, verse 4. I am fleeting. God has given me my days. They are but a few hand's breaths. So a hand breath is like one of the smaller measurements in that culture. It's four fingers. 
So he's saying, look, my life is about as small a measurement as you can. Like, look at the cosmos, the infinity. My life is four fingers compared to who God is. My my lifetime is nothing. And it's not just me, but it's mankind, he says, is a mere breath. That's in verse 5. And he uses this word hevel. Hevel is this word for um, vapor. And this is used many, many times in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're familiar with Ecclesiastes, he he begins Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, hevel, hevel, says the preacher. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. What, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. He says, our life is, it's hevel, it's, it's a breath. Man is like a shadow, he says in verse 6. The turmoil is a moment, and the wealth and the power and the glory that some are able to heap up, they get left behind when our momentary vaporous life is gone. We need actually to be reminded, our momentary vaporous life is gone, and all the stuff that we've acquired, we pass on to the next momentary vaporous life, who then passes it on to the next momentary vaporous life. This is an, I, I think, it's an undeniable reality, right? I mean, I don't think this requires any kind of faith. You don't need the Bible to tell you this. You just need to live more than like two years on earth and look around you. This is something that I think honest atheists and religious people have in common. I think we can, agree, if we're going to be honest about the world, I think we have this in common and whether you believe in a God or not, or, or people that you know, whether, you, whether they believe in a God or not, think of yourself in light of human history and cosmic history. You're a breath. We're a breath. Is that, de- is that depressing? I think, I think if this is the end of the story, it's like, well, what the heck's the point? I mean, why am I wasting time doing this at least? It, it can be. I mean, you're, you're a vapor. We, along with the great and the powerful, the weak or the seemingly meaningless, we are insignificant in the grand scheme of things, right? Our, our brevity is a reality. But here's, here's what I want to challenge. As odd as it sounds, confessing this is the road to freedom. Confessing the reality of this and not pretending as if it's not is the road of freedom. How is that the case? How, how do we not get swallowed up into nothingness and meaninglessness? Well, we need another reality. So this, there's a kind of twofold thing that David does here. We need another reality that keeps us from drifting into oblivion. Because we could all walk out of here, right, and just go run in front of a bus. Like, what's the point of this? Well, we need another reality. What else does David confess to be true? He says this in verse 7. After all that stuff, he says, and now, O Lord, for what do I want? wait? Like, after all this, what do I wait for? My hope is toward you. My hope is in you. Our vapor of life finds its meaning in connection to the one who is not a vapor. The way that you find significance in your vaporous life is being connected to one who is eternal. <laughs> he lasts beyond the moment. Now, this, 
not everybody's going to agree on. So this is where we may have some differences with our atheist friends or our atheist thoughts in our own head. That hope comes from God. But man, surely if there is going to be hope in our fleeting lives, it has to come, like regardless of what your worldview is, if there's going to be hope, it has to come from something bigger than yourself, doesn't it? Because we just acknowledge we're a vapor. There's got to be something more if we're going to have any kind of hope. How does this help? How does knowing this help? Well, David believed because he believed in this story of the Hebrew scriptures that there is this God who made all things that is personal and he identified himself as this Yahweh who is working with his people. That he is actually, David's actually experienced, he's, he's witnessed it, he's had encounters with this God. He believes that this God not only is the one who is the maker of all things, but that he is good, that he is worthy to be hoped in. David has this deep conviction that that's actually true. So in confessing the dual reality, okay, it's a confession of the vaporness of our life, our, our brevity, and the fact that there is hope in this God, David is lifted up to a new vantage point. So that's what he's inviting us to. We're actually able to be lifted up to a new vantage point where we can f- confess something else. So we're not only confessing our the reality of life, but we also get to confess our need, our need for deliverance, he says, our need to be heard, and our need for God to actually turn away. So as, as he walks through this, this is verses 8 through 13. The problem is not just with the wicked out there. He sees the need for personal deliverance. So he's acknowledged the wickedness, but he's also now beginning to see in these verses that there's something else going on in himself. He's not making any excuses. Now he's talking about not opening his mouth. He's talking about not He's talking about being mute, not because he's biting his tongue in frustration, but because his sin is before him. And that makes some, it's not so burning anymore. It's not like, I've got to justify myself. It's when you come face to face with your sin, it causes your mouth to be shut. There's something internal that happens. Whatever discipline he's receiving, he doesn't like it, but he sees that it's, it's just. He recognizes that. And he's echoing what he already said about the fragility of life and of his situation. He's confessing our condition is not just because we are human. Like before, you're a human being, and so therefore there's a brevity of life. But now it's because sin has fractured us. Because this is what he says in the end of verse 11. Surely all, all mankind, all mankind, because of this, because of our fractured lives, all mankind is a mere breath. So in honest desperation, in all of this, he confesses his need for deliverance. I, I need deliverance. Have you ever felt like you needed deliverance? Is that something that we actually can confess because we, we see it within ourselves? Not just because some religious person tells you to confess, but because you can't help but confess and acknowledge, I need, I've got to have something more. We need rescue from ourselves, from our self-serving way that makes us a mere breath and that leads ultimately to death. Which then, he says, leads him to confess his need to be heard in his groaning and his crying. Freedom comes through honest tears. There is no freedom if you cannot cry. <laughs> like, maybe physically, but definitely, metaphorically speaking. If you cannot weep, 
there's no freedom if you hold back. We, we need to not just call out to some unknown entity and force. We need, we need to be heard by one who we have alienated. We need to be heard by the one that we've rebelled against, but we need to be heard by him with an acknowledgement that he actually cares. Because if he doesn't care, this is meaningless. But we need to be heard by one who cares. And David's, David's confession, this is raw. This is one I've, I've struggled. I don't think I've ever spent a lot of time in this psalm until this last week or two. And I've all, but reading this, I kind of glance over this, this last verse because I've never known what to do with it. I think I, I think I get it now. Because he says, look, I want you, Lord, to turn away so I can experience joy. Turn away so I can smile again before I die. I just want another day of joy before I am no more. This is what he says. Turn away from me. What in the world do you do with this? Have you ever been that bad off? Just look. Leave me alone. Just, just leave me alone. All right. Is he really asking God to leave him? Maybe. Maybe he is. But I, I think there's something more going on here. That's, that's not, because it's not actually what he says. He says, look, turn away. And presumably this would be turn away from my, turn away from my sin. In light of everything that he said, turn away from my sin. Stop dealing with it. Look, can you just, can we just pretend like it's not there? Can you just act like it's not there? And confessing his need for deliverance and to be heard, he ends with this need for God to turn away, not to treat him as he deserves so he can actually enjoy life. I want to enjoy life. I need you to treat me as if I am not a sinner. That's what he's asking. God hears his confession. You could even say God gives him that desire. David's known as a man after God's own heart. I'm wondering if this is part of it. He actually has a heart that aligns with God's heart. What is God's heart? God's heart is he wants to pretend like you don't have sin. <laughs> he, he wants to restore you to himself. God who stands above time, who works throughout time, personally in her time, in, in Jesus. To answer this confession of David and all who come after him, all who came before him, Everybody who's confessing our situation, when we're confessing our reality, when we're confessing our need, Jesus enters into the world to answer, to actually be every part of this confession. Jesus is what we would call the fulfillment. He's the answer to the prayer. What, what does that mean? What, what does that even mean? Well, Jesus stood as he calls himself the son of man. What is that? He's saying, I'm the representative of humanity. Like, I'm, I'm the child of all humanity. I'm the representative. He's also considered a king in this. And I have come to be the representative to, to deliver you from yourself and your sin. How does this happen? Though he was innocent, he took our plague. The thing that David talked about in verse 10, the, the stroke, the plague, the plague. He took the glare of human injustice. He took the just consequence of our rebellion. He took what he says in verse 10 also. He took the hostility. Jesus took the blow. 
And he willingly did this so that God could turn from us to him. Because God laid on him the iniquity of us all. God actually answered David's prayer. David says, turn, don't look at me anymore. He answers it different than David thinks. I am going to turn away and I'm going to look at my son as I lay on him the iniquity of us all so that God can also turn back and look at you. They can look back at us, but this time he looks with a smile. This time he looks with forgiveness. This time he looks with joy so that we can be free. We can experience the smile, the care. We can have it all taken away, the things that are so disruptive, destructive to us. And we can actually experience the joy that David is longing for. In Jesus, he wants to give us that. And he frees us to smile, to experience joy, not just in a moment before we die. We actually get to experience this forever. So this is described more. Paul does this in uh, 1 Corinthians. Where he talks about the perishable takes on the imperishable and the mortal takes on immortality. What's he saying? Your vaporous life now connected to the one who is solid is no longer a vaporous life. Confession of our situation and reality and need, find, find their answer in Jesus. Jesus is the centerpiece. He's the final confession. He's the one that sets us free to live as people who are full of joy. He, he invites us to do this as people who are full of joy because we're deeply cared for. Do you know you're deeply cared for? You're deeply loved. And when we begin to experience that, we get to go into the world and we get to give that kind of care and that kind of love to the world around. So Father, as we consider this reality, reality of we are vaporous life and yet there's hope in you and in connection with you, our lives are turned into something more than we could ever make for ourselves. Help us to know what confession really looks like. A confession that frees us for life. And as you do that, Lord, make us a people who are freed in Christ so that we can love our neighbors, we can love our city, we can love the world. We ask this all in your name. Amen.